Hello and welcome to The Curator on Monaco Radio with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Over the next 60 minutes, I'll be bringing some of the very best interviews and reports from the past week. This week, we look at a bizarre conspiracy theory about Taylor Swift and the Super Bowl. The plan, apparently, is that the fix is in for the Chiefs to win the Super Bowl, thereby elevating Swift and Kelsey to even greater prominence, though in her ubiquitous case in particular, this seems more or less impossible. Plus, the top tracks in Mexico. All that and much more here on The Curator. We start the show with our Foreign Desk Explainer of the Week, a very interesting one, where Andrew Muller examines why bizarre conspiracy theories about Taylor Swift and the Super Bowl are spreading. This Sunday, Super Bowl 58 will be contested at the Allegiant Stadium in Paradise, Nevada by the Kansas City Chiefs and the San Francisco 49ers. Drifting right, throwing, what a catch! That was Kelsey pulling it down. None of this is news. The Super Bowl, the climactic match which determines each NFL season's champions, is an annual event. The venue was selected years ago. The Kansas City Chiefs have played in three of the last four Super Bowls and are the defending champions. The San Francisco 49ers have been there or thereabouts for a few seasons now. They lost Super Bowl 44 to the Chiefs four years ago, were a game away from making the Super Bowl two years after that, and would probably have faced the Chiefs in the Super Bowl again last year, but for a freakish sequence of injuries in that season's NFC Championship game, the NFL equivalent of a semi-final, which left the 49ers trying to beat the Philadelphia Eagles without a quarterback. Which, if you're new to American football, is like trying to win a game of pool without a cue. On paper, then, this seems about as prosaic and predictable a Super Bowl as might have been forecast when the current season began last September. In reality, however, though reality is arguably not quite the word for the 21st century American political landscape, circumstances have contrived to turn Sunday's match into what may be the weirdest Super Bowl of all time, like even weirder than Super Bowl 51, in which the Atlanta Falcons somehow managed to lose to the New England Patriots despite holding a 25-point lead halfway through the third quarter. The thing is essentially this. At some point during this season, the Kansas City Chiefs superstar tight end Travis Kelsey began stepping out with the monstrously popular singer Taylor Swift. I promise that you'll never find another like me. At which point, the reasonable listener will be thinking, fine, whatever, good luck to them, even if the reasonable football viewer may be given to wondering if absolutely all these shots of Swift jumping excitedly up and down whenever Kelsey catches a pass are altogether necessary. Pacheco, in for the touchdown! But the reasonable listener or viewer, or reasonable pundit, or for that matter reasonable citizen, is not who presently drives America's political discourse. 
Accordingly, a voluble cohort of American conservatives, the kind of people who, in less ridiculous times, would have been delighted by a public romance between a footballer with a Midwestern team and a singer with a country music background, are winding themselves and each other up with the idea that the Kelsey-Swift partnership is, in fact, a sinister hoax undertaken to deliver this year's US presidential election to Joe Biden. And then, probably, to further the deep state's ultimate plans to confiscate everybody's guns and herd the entire population into re-education camps where they will be forcibly injected with tracker nanobots and press-ganged into gay weddings conducted by Satanists. Failed presidential candidate and idiot Vivek Ramaswamy channeled this conspiracy theory by posting on social media with an implied arch of eyebrow and tap on nose that he wondered who was going to win the Super Bowl and if this victory might be followed by a presidential endorsement from what he described as an artificially culturally propped up couple. A bold move from supporters of Donald Trump describing anyone else's relationship as a hollow sham maintained for political purposes. Further branches of the theory note Travis Kelsey's past promotion of Pfizer vaccines and Bud Light. The latter, a beer which has become a radioactive taboo among American conservatives for reasons actually even sillier than any of this. So the plan, apparently, is that the fix is in for the Chiefs to win the Super Bowl, thereby elevating Swift and Kelsey to even greater prominence, though in her ubiquitous case in particular, this seems more or less impossible. Mike, back to Taylor Swift. The Taylor effect is real. Travis Kelsey gained almost 900,000 new followers on Instagram this past week. If 49ers quarterback Brock Purdy twangs his elbow in the first quarter again, or if San Francisco's largely unstoppable running back Christian McCaffrey is at a similarly early stage crushed by a grand piano falling from an overflying aircraft, or if Chiefs quarterback Patrick Mahomes sheds his human container to reveal a three-metre-tall lizard which fires laser beams from its eye sockets, then okay, maybe there's a thing. It would nevertheless be fascinating, yet unsurprising to discover how many of the people now seething that American football is scripted are habitual viewers of professional wrestling. Uh, let's get ready to rumble! Incredibly stupid though this whole farrago is, it has acquired sufficient momentum that NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell has felt compelled to deny it. There is no way that I could have scripted that one. Let's just put it that way. As has the US Department of Defense, accused by one Fox News fulminator of co-opting Taylor Swift as a psychological operations asset. The Pentagon responded that, as for this conspiracy theory, we are going to shake it off. And you can see what they've done there. Inevitably, the denials have only inflamed the speculation, as denials always do. One glorious day, some senior leader of a great democracy will respond to such nonsense by exclaiming, I'm not even going to engage with this, you people are just morons, and suggest removing the vote from the insistently half-witted, but we do not appear to be there yet. But if Sunday's Super Bowl actually has been bent for Kansas City by a cabal of furtive yet omnipotent plotters whose ability to manipulate human affairs is such that they can fix entire football seasons, nobody has told bookmakers. 
As of this broadcast, you can still get maybe five to four on the Chiefs, which, all things considered, looks outstanding value. For Monocle Radio, I'm Andrew Muller. And we're back with one of our news highlights of the week. In 2022, the Ukrainian non-profit organization Center of Civil Liberties won the Nobel Peace Prize, together with pro-democracy groups in Belarus and Russia. Oleksandra Matvichuk. Oleksandra Matvichuk heads the organization and she spoke to Monaco's Julia Lasica about why accountability in the war is so important and what comes next in Ukraine's defense against Russia. The future is unclear and unguaranteed, but we have a chance to fight for future which we want. And this is a huge luxury to have such a chance. And we see victory very ambitious. Victory for Ukraine is not just to repeal Russian troops out from Ukrainian territory and to restore international order, to release people in occupied territories. But victory for Ukraine also means to succeed in democratic transition of our country to build sustainable democratic institutions. One of the most important topics you talk about is international accountability for Russia's war crimes. Can you tell us why that's important? Last week, obviously, there was the ICJ ruling on Israel and Gaza, which sort of plays into the whole conversation about bringing countries to accountability. What, in the context of the world right now, can you tell us about that? Is a common sense. If we want to stop wars in the globe, we have to punish states and authoritarian leaders who start such wars. And the problem is that in the whole history of humankind, we have only one such a precedent. It was Nuremberg trial last century. And it was a trial where Nazi war criminals were tried, but after their regime had collapsed. And we have no other such international court which have jurisdiction to prosecute Putin and top political leadership and high military command of Russian state for the crime of aggression. This means that we have urgently to create a special tribunal and to hold these people accountable. And can you tell us also about your part of the kind of new generation of Ukrainians after the 2014 revolution? Can you tell us about why Ukrainian society has been so strong throughout, you know, since the 2014 beginning of this whole war and then 2022, the full-scale invasion? Why has Ukraine been able to withstand and to have such strong voices in the international dialogue? During the Revolution of Dignity, millions of Ukrainians stood up their voice against corrupt and authoritarian regimes. They bravely took to the street across the country and fight just for a chance to build a country where the rights of everybody are protected, government is accountable, judiciary is independent, and police do not beat students who are peacefully demonstrating. And we paid a rather high price for this chance because more than 100 peaceful protesters were gunning down in the main square of the city. And what is important reason for such behavior? Because if you take any sociological survey, you will see that Ukrainians always put freedom in the first place of hierarchy of values. And so last year, obviously, your name became known all around the globe because you won the Nobel Peace Prize. Can you tell us about what winning that prize meant for the struggle, for the Ukrainian struggle? Has it added anything? Did it give some sort of recognition that was maybe missing before? What has it changed? 
For decades, the voice of human rights defenders from other parts of the world wasn't heard because we told that Russia is violated uh, the rights of their own citizens because Russia prosecuted journalists, jailed activists and dispersed peaceful demonstrations, uh, that Russia conducts horrible war crimes in other countries like Syria, like Mali, Libya, Georgia, and they have never punished for this. Uh, but even well-developed democracies, they close their eyes for these facts and they continue to do business as usual with Russia. They shake in Putin's hands, they build a house pipeline. And this leads to a situation that Russians start to believe they can do whatever they wanted. Because peace and human rights are inextricably linked. And countries which violate um, human rights obligation, such countries provide a threat not just for their own citizens, but to the peace in the world as a whole. And now this Nobel Peace Prize provides the voice of human rights defenders the opportunity to be heard. Yeah, but you won it, of course, alongside a Belarusian activist and a Belarusian group and a Russian group. What is the role of Russians and Belarusians now? Do Ukrainians, do Ukrainians have to work with them? Is there a sort of feeling that there has to be some sort of collaboration between like-minded Ukrainians, Belarusians, Russians? What has to happen next? The problem is that it's not just Putin's war. This is a war of Russian nation, because majority of Russians either supports war or uh, state a position non-objection to the war, So, which means they, they silently supported this all atrocities which is going on. But among this majority, there is uh, people who have a courage to stood up against this war. Among them, my brave human rights Russian colleagues like uh, Memorial and other famous uh, human rights organization, which now were destroyed and liquidated in Russia. And uh, we closely cooperate with uh, them regardless of war. E even more, we need their assistance because we have thousands and thousands illegally detained civilians in Russia. And for us, the only way even just to understand where they are, it's uh, our brave Russian human rights colleague who uh, decided to stay in the country, regardless of the fact that can face very easily uh, criminal prosecutions. So we have to understand we are in a war and societies, uh, it's very naturally take a distance between each other. But for us, as for human rights defenders who see the world through the same human rights prisma, it's uh, very important to continue cooperation. You are listening to The Curator with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Next up, we are in Toronto, where a network of tunnels designed to help get locals around in cold weather is now facing the same stagnation that the glacial return to work has presented for offices above ground. To explain more, Monaco's Amy Vandenberg filed this report. Anthony Farnell, our chief meteorologist here at Global News, is braving the elements out in Toronto. Anthony, what can we expect from the latest storm? Well, the snow has begun in earnest and it is coming down heavily, far, And this really is a front-loaded system. What I mean Toronto is known for its cold winters. By mid-January, Canada's central economic hub and largest city freezes over, only to thaw in May. During the coldest months, ice and snow crust the sidewalks and a blistering wind howls through the city's central grid. Thankfully, Toronto has a secret weapon 
the so-called PATH system, which has become the longest underground pedestrian system in the world. First built in 1900 and expanded throughout the century, this subterranean walkway stretching over 30 kilometers saves Torontonians from the harsh winters above and connects the many malls, subway stations, and office buildings that make up the downtown core. The tunnels aren't as bleak as they sound. Think a network of wide halls dotted with clothes stores, cafes, juice bars, dry cleaners, bookshops, and intermittent food halls and atriums. It's a climate-controlled, well-lit, marble-floored labyrinth with occasional escalators ready to bring you up to the surface or lobby of a hotel or office tower. You can get from Union Station to First Canadian Place Business Centre in 15 minutes and grab a Starbucks along the way, all without dirtying your boots in ankle-deep slush. And despite an atrocious lack of signage, everyone who populates it seems to know exactly where they're going. Before the pandemic, the underground maze was a busy place. Every 9 a.m. and 5 p.m. peak rush time, crowds of suited and heeled employees rose and descended into the passages and flowed to and from Union as a single organism. Lunch hours were equally as active as workers ran errands and conducted casual business meetings over Szechuan on a tray in the food courts. But like many urban central business districts that serve the working public, Toronto's economic hub was dealt a massive blow by the pandemic, and the paths went quiet. Walking through downtown Toronto's path system, you can see a few more people making their way down from the buildings above to the stores and restaurants below. But the pandemic has certainly taken... Today, some foot traffic has returned to the system. But although it's no longer the ghost town it was, it has struggled to bounce back. Midweek crowds are more dense than Monday and Friday, and Toronto has been called out as one of the slowest cities in North America to return to the office. Those businesses that survived off of government aid throughout 2020 and 2021 are now feeling the pinch of debts having to be repaid, and many are ending their leases and closing shop. The state of the path echoes the reality above ground. The vacancy rate of offices in Toronto's downtown core is over 15%, and this number is expected to climb as 10-year leases renew. So what's next for this network, which was once so essential to the day-to-day lives of thousands of people? In a reversal of the old adage, if you build it, they will come, Toronto is currently holding its breath, hoping back-to-work schemes and incentives also bring workers back to the path. And it's award season. I love award season. And now we look at a behind-the-scenes look at the craftsmanship that goes into Hollywood makeup to create silver screen transformations. And with the BAFTAs around the corner, Monaco's Laura Kramer caught up with one of the nominees. It's from the film Maestro. Two-time Academy Award winner Kazuhiro is a master of prosthetic makeup design, renowned for his work on biopics and movies based on true stories. His ability to morph stars into historical figures is so good, audiences have to squint to try to find any resemblance of the famous face they know so well in the character they play on screen. He won the Oscar for his work on the 2017 British war drama Darkest Hour, in which he turned Gary Oldman into Winston Churchill. You cannot reason with a tiger when your head is in its mouth! And 2019's Bombshell, in which he morphed several people into well-known media figures, including Charlize Theron, who played the former Fox News talk show host Megyn Kelly. 
A hotline in this building is like a complaint box in occupied Paris. And now he's getting praise for yet another transformation, that of Bradley Cooper into the late great conductor and composer Leonard Bernstein in the Netflix drama Maestro, which Cooper also directed, and co-stars Carey Mulligan, who plays his wife. Hello, I'm Lenny. Hello, Felicia. Uh, Bernstein, like that one. Montalegre Cone. Montalegre Cone. Well, that's an interesting marriage of words. In a way, the film is a full circle moment for Kazu, whose fascination with the legendary composer goes back to his teenage years in Japan. Leonard Bernstein was a big inspiration when I just started makeup. And uh, I watched the documentary about him, and I was really inspired what message he sent out to the student to inspire them to be the best. He can be the first great American conductor. Fast forward to Maestro, in which Kazu had the task of designing five stages of prosthetics for Bradley Cooper, representing different phases of his character's aging. At that time, he just finished licorice pizza, and uh, his character needed to have some weight. He was quite big at that time, and uh, <laughs> uh, you know, Lenny had a more like a gaunt look. And so I took a live cast and a scan of Bradley, including body, because we had to change his body shape too for the, as he aged. How long did this take in the makeup chair every day? Because I know he also wanted to work with a very small team to get that accomplished. So first stage, because of the face, facelift, it took longer than the second stage. It was like a, a two hours and a half. And the fifth stage was about, took about five hours. The hard work and long hours have paid off for the both of them. The film has received critical acclaim, earning nominations for seven BAFTAs and seven Oscars, including in the makeup and hair categories. And Kazu says he's overwhelmed by the recognition and beyond thankful for the opportunity. It's really meaningful because this movie was really like a passion project for both of us, for myself and Bradley. After 36 years, to make my dream come true. He, he brought me like a great gift. From Monocle Radio, I'm Laura Kramer. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. We're back with The Curator, our weekly highlight show here on Monaco Radio. Our On This Day historical series considers the melancholy exile of one of the 20th century's more wretchedly hapless despots. Step right up, come on in, if you'd like to take... When a fellow finds himself in his mid-forties, unemployed, flat broke and living in a shed in the garden of the house of the father of the woman who recently divorced him, he may well incline to curse his luck. 
He probably should, however, reflect on such decisions of his own as may have led him to this unhappy and undignified situation, especially if he was born rich, inherited power, was basically presented at birth with all the equipment necessary for the construction of a useful, commendable and pleasant life. It is not clear, however, that self-awareness was ever Jean-Claude de Vallier's long suit. It all went askew for him on February 7th, 1986. The sound there of a small and hastily improvised presidential motorcade proceeding at a considerable clip to the airport, very much in the hope that the plane's engines are already running, with a view to enacting takeoff before the pursuing mob have got their pitchforks through security. Jean-Claude de Vallier had been president of Haiti since 1971, assuming the role at the age of 19 upon the death of his father, Francois. Francois de Vallier, better known as Papa Doc, a nod to his background as a physician, was a thug and a crook and a lunatic. He reputedly kept the head of one vanquished opponent in his office. His Praetorian Guard-slash-personal death squad, the infamous Tonton Makuts, tortured and murdered thousands of Papa Doc's enemies, real and imagined. During one paranoid frenzy, Papa Doc had ordered the extermination of all black dogs in Haiti, believing that a possible rival had assumed such a form. The fact that said rival was in fact the commander of the Tonton Makuts, Clement Barbo, is an unimprovable demonstration of Papa Doc's theories of leadership. The ceremonial panoply with which Duvalier surrounded himself was never more than a camouflage to cover the absolute power he himself held. He and those around him wove a spell of terror over Haiti, conjured up out of voodoo mysticism and administered at gunpoint. When Papa Doc, who believed himself immortal, at least understood that he was departing this corporeal realm, a referendum was put to Haiti's people, asking them to endorse Jean-Claude, known as Baby Doc, as his successor, President for Life. The result was recorded at 2,391,916 2, votes in favour, one against, with two abstentions. Uh -huh. This vote has not since been regularly upheld as a model of free, fair, transparent democracy in action. As president, Baby Doc was an improvement on Papa Doc, at least inasmuch that it is preferable to be governed by a gormless moron than a rampaging maniac. However, Baby Doc's expensive tastes played badly with Haiti's generally impoverished people, especially as it was, theoretically, their money. He spent a fortune on his wedding. His wife spent several fortunes in the boutiques of Paris. The population grew restive. The United States, which had been vaguely content to prop Baby Doc up on the grounds that he wasn't Fidel Castro, intimated that he had outlived his usefulness. Early on this day, 38 years ago, as whatever was left in Haiti's treasury that hadn't been squandered on parties and shoes was funneled out of the country, Baby Doc addressed the nation. C'est pourquoi, désirant entrer dans l'histoire, la tête haute, la conscience tranquille, j'ai décidé. Don't know. 
The Duvaliers decamped to France, where they owned at least four splendid homes. It was supposed to be a temporary arrangement, but nobody else would take them. Initially, the former first couple seemed to have gotten away with it, living large on what they had looted, give or take one police raid during which Mrs. de Valier was caught attempting to flush receipts for $169,000 from Givenchy, $270,000 from Boucheron, and nearly ten grand for two children's horse saddles from Hermes. As you leave, you'll see Baby Doc's divorce in 1993 should have instilled in him some empathy with the Haitian people, at least in as much as someone else ran off with all his cash. At one especially low point, he was arrested for attempting to swerve a bill from a $78 a night pension. He returned to Haiti in 2011, did face some charges but no meaningful justice, and lived reasonably comfortably, certainly compared to the squalor endured by most of his fellow citizens until his death, aged 63, in 2014. He's a president we will never have again in Haiti. We will never forget him. We will remember him with regrets. We always think about him. With due acknowledgement of the risks of mistaking one vox-popped rando for the voice of a nation, it is a dismal reflection on Haitian governance since that the rule of baby doc is recalled by anybody as a relative golden era. For Monocle Radio, I'm Andrew Miller. And now to Denmark, where the 62nd edition of the Copenhagen International Fashion Fair took place. Monaco Radio has been there and broadcasting our pop-up cafe studio, where Monaco's Tom Webb sat down with Simon Rasmussen, founder and editor-in-chief of Office Magazine, to talk about the future of the magazine and fashion journalism. The ethos from day one was to fuck shit up to be disruptive, to change things the the way we saw the magazine media landscape at that time. It's 10 years ago now. We wanted to be inclusive, engaging with some real people, with real content, real images, something raw, authentic, that felt not so glamorous and pretentious from what we felt like the magazine and media landscape was at that point. So that's how it started. And choosing a different word, how have you messed things up in the landscape? How have you shaken it up? What does that look like on print? We have definitely put ourselves in very difficult situation with advertisers multiple times. I think we've learned our lesson now. We've had a couple of naked men on the cover with like full nudity, full disclosure, yeah which in some worlds and in some people were, were brilliant and genius and they loved it, and others uh, not so much. But that's what we wanted to do. We, we didn't want to create something that was liked by everyone. We wanted to create something that everybody was able to see and, and feel and hear, but not necessarily liked. How do you now strike the balance between naked men and advertisers? Naked men, women, or anything in between, or whatever you are comfortable calling yourself. We just notice that as long as we can still do it, just don't put it on the cover, and don't put it on social media. Then we're good. We can still do it. Lesson learned. And how else have you evolved over the past decade? 
Oh, we've learned a lot uh, and we've evolved in so many ways. From the beginning, the magazine was more of a, a portfolio, amateurish project that was just we just wanted to create. And now it's it's a business. We're a creative agency. We have an online media, you know, with daily content, staff, employees, and office. So yeah. And looking at the future of the magazine, are you keeping the business model the same? Yes, we're focusing more and more on our, on our creative agency, where we do either content for the print magazine or online audience, or we do white label productions, campaigns, events and such. And speaking of the future, we are standing in the heart of the Copenhagen International Fashion Fair. What is the future of fashion journalism? Oh, um, I, you know, there are days where I'm optimistic and like feel like, yes, we got this. This is this is why we're here. And the other days where I feel like there is no purpose for us anymore. Everybody is a journalist. Everybody with with an Instagram account or an X account or whatever social media is your preference is basically a magazine. I, I, I hope and I pray that that's not the future we're actually truly evolving into, that we can still keep some, some magazines with integrity and with true editorial point of view that I gravitate towards. We'll see. And currently, how are you differentiating yourself from those Influencers I can see out the window right now with their fancy clothes and haircuts. Well, that that's the that's the question. You know, are we are we any different? I believe we are. I truly believe we are. I feel like there's no. I haven't seen any social media person with an editorial angle. It's always about me, 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 and that's also what the reader, what the consumer actually want. They want that me, me, me. Where a magazine is is less about that. It's more about putting light on someone else. <laughs> and I, we still need that. It's so important. That's what I work on every single day. And is that what you're working on right now here at the Fashion Fair? What are you doing today? Today, I'm having a few meetings, meeting some people, preparing for a big party we have tomorrow with Sif at Uxnehelen for thousands of people with great music. Again, like that's not for me. That's for, for you guys. To, it's to for come. us. We're going to be there. Yeah, great. <laughs> And also, are there brands here that you're looking out for in particular? There's a few brands. I myself, personally, I work with a brand as an active wear fashionable brand called Seven Days Active that I work with. Besides that, I'm, I'm uh, sniffing around, seeing what's new, what's up. I like to find some new brands and I haven't seen it yet, but I'm, I'm, I just got here an hour ago, so I still have time to snoop around. And when will you know that you've seen the brand of the future? What is it going to look like sustainable obviously i think it's important with a sustainability yes and a commercial aspect and then a point of view a true love for what you do no matter what it is if you're creating boots or scarves or a full ready to wear line if you you have to love what you do and love the product you put out there i think that's like the key to any successful brand. And I try to be part of that as well as a media. You know, I, I love what we do. I truly believe in it. And I think that's what will sustain. And the same goes for any fashion brand. Like you, you have to love the product you put out there and really truly believe in it and want to wear and sleep in it every single day. Well, finally, this program is hosted by Fernando Augusto Pacheco, who is amongst 
many things aware of shorts. We're looking ahead to spring. What does spring fashion look like? Not just in the Nordics, all of Europe, America. What should we be wearing? I'm going to be wearing, and this doesn't align with what I'm wearing today, but I'm going to be wearing colorful clothes. I believe that we're moving away from this dark time we've been in, and maybe some of us still are, but I believe in in a fresh perspective on the future and something optimistic. I think we need that. We need colors. We need to look each other in the eyes and smile and connect. And I think that the dark colors often get us, close us in a little bit, whereas like bright colors opens us up. So I, I believe in that. We're back with the curator. And for my weekly countdown, I head to Mexico. And all I can say is that I believe Mexico is one of the music hotspots of the world. You're listening to The Briefing with me, Andrew Muller, and that cheery sting alerts you to the fact that it is the last item on Thursday's briefing, that it is, therefore, time to welcome Fernando Augusto Pacheco to the studio for the Global Countdown. Um, Fernando, frankly, I'm astonished after last week's fiasco that anybody would still be listening to us. Even you will concede, <laughs> limitlessly enthusiastic as you are about all expressions of popular song, that the Hungarian top five we endured last week was not a classic. It was not a classic, so that's why... I, I decided, you know what, I have to go to a hotspot music-wise, and that's Mexico. You know, they're doing very well tourism-wise, food-wise, but when it comes to music, mm-hmm. this year is going to be the year of Mexican music. Uh, people are listening to it all around the world. Are they? They are. They are indeed. And the type of music you might be surprised. Uh, <laughs> what what I mean, good. <laughs> a good surprise, I may, I may say. Because at number five, we have a very, in some ways, quite traditional band. So they play regional uh, Mexican music. Is, is, is there a really huge guitar and accordion involved in this? There are. Amazing. There are. And, uh, you know, they're called Grupo Frontera. They are from Texas, indeed. But, of mm-hmm. course, they have Mexican heritage. They have a song with another Grupo, Grupo Firma El Amor de Su Vida. No estoy llorando. Es que se están descongelando. Sentimientos no son lágrimas de llanto. Si de pronto alguien de aquí tuvo. There's an accordion and what was clearly, I think, a really large guitar in that. And you were smiling, so perhaps maybe you kind of like it? I didn't I didn't mind it. Regular <laughs> listeners, like we have any left, to the Global Countdown will know that I do have, by and large, a fondness for the country music of the American Deep South. And obviously, given the location, there is a huge overlap uh, with a, a Mexican influence as well. Um quite a lot of which has had a, a, a vastly improving effect upon country music. So I didn't actually, and regular listeners will know how unusual this is, I did not actually object violently to that. And it's poetic. I mean, he says, Today I saw the love of my life, happy as ever, kissing the love of her life. Uh, it's quite sad, but you know. But he's got his big guitar and an accordion, so life's not all terrible. And he's a global pop star. And he's well. a global pop star. <laughs> Plenty more fish in the sea. Uh, that's at number five. What's at number four? We continue this kind of traditional vibe, perhaps a little bit more modern here, because this song, again, as most songs these days, became a TikTok sensation. Mm. Uh, and good so he- nobody's ever heard more than 10 seconds of it. Perhaps. <laughs> but maybe he would play my maybe 20 or something like that. Uh, it's Oscar Ortiz and his bro- two brothers basically charted already. 
So that's the first time that Oscar is charting the music, uh, you know, in the music parades as well. M- Mrs. Ortiz must be very proud. Very proud. Oscar Ortiz and Edgardo Nunez with First Love. Yo quisiera saber lo que sientes saber. Explícame una vez. Yo que te hice a ti pa' que pongas el fin en esta relación. Solo tú, solo tú, solo tú. Another accordion, more big guitars, I'll wager. You're loving it, you're loving it. <laughs> and he's crying, basically, because his really? first love doesn't want him anymore. So he's, in a way, he's very similar to the number five song. So and, and, and he's got worse problems than that because all these brothers got in the charts before he did. Exactly. So, you know, good good on Miss Ortiz, as, as you're saying. Their mother must be very proud. Well, indeed. Let, let, let's see if we can maintain this absolutely cracking standard, Fernando. What What is at number three? First of all, you can't say anything bad about the song because oh, it's being added to the Monaco playlist this week. Um, so, I mean... Really? Out of contract, please, Andrew. I, I'm not sure it actually says that anywhere in my contract, Andrew. <laughs> well, let's have a Let's listen. find out. Let's find out. Number three, we have Kaliushis and Peso Pluma, Igual Kirun Henhel. See, Fernando, I'm actually just reading <laughs> yes. my contract. That is that is the rustling there. Uh, and I, I have found the clause to which you refer. It turns out you are right. I am absolutely forbidden from uttering a word against any song actually on our playlist. So I'm going to go ahead and agree that that was not at all terrible glutinous drivel and was in fact entirely wonderful. It's beautiful. Look at the disco beat as on Kalyu, she's she's very respected, you know, mm, these days. Very and respected. Although she's she was born in it's, the US. It says here in my contract <laughs> that I respect her greatly. I'm very glad. She's American, but she has a Colombian father. So that's uh, that song's from her fourth album, which is her second in Spanish. Mm-hmm. So she can, you know, she sings in both songs. But I think when she sings in Spanish, I think the critics perhaps uh, favor uh, those songs Only a little bit more. they don't understand the lyrics. <laughs> perhaps, perhaps. <laughs> uh, but I love it. I love number three. Uh, at number two. Number two, I mean, Javi. Uh, I have problems pronouncing his name because it's X-A-V-I. Mm. In Portuguese would say Xavi. Uh, in English I think you say Xavi or Xavi, something. Xavi. I'm actually not sure. Never tried until He's now. He's a young man. He's only 19 years old. From plenty of time to learn a trade. Plenty of time. He's from Arizona as mm-hmm. well. Uh, but of course Mexican heritage as well. I mean he's global. I think he's probably the most kind of popular artist at the moment or maybe the second most well, in popular. In the whole world. I would say so because he's only you, number two in Mexico. Well, number one must be a humdinger, but we we we, uh, we, we will get to that. The, I'm, I don't give spoiler spoilers usually, but let's have a listen. Izavi with La Victima. <laughs> He sounds somewhat more cheerful than most of his compatriots. Because this genre that he's singing is called Corrido Tumbado. So mm-hmm. it is regional Mexican music, but mm-hmm. with some elements of trap music. You know, a little bit more up-tempo, a little bit more modern, perhaps. And again, he's 19. He looks 19. He's very, very young. He still wears braces as well. What was the gist of what he was just singing there? You're 
Spanish is a great deal better than mine. It is a love story. I mean, the victim, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, so of course he's the victim. Obviously. Obviously he is. But I mean, talking about Nomura, I think there's a good segue now. He's the victim because he only chooses the devil to, 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 to fall in love with. Oh, I see. Or the devil. Is, I mean, do you have the devil in a female version in, in English? Or the devil can be no, both sexes? No, I, I think, the, I think the, the devil in the the Judeo-Christian tradition is usually depicted as a male, but I think we have deviated from the point somewhat. We did, because our next track is called La Diabla, ah, or The Female Devil. Okay, my, my Spanish is not great, but even <laughs> I could have had a swing at that. And guess who's singing La Diabla? Is it Henry Kissinger? <laughs> it's not Henry Kissinger, <laughs> but it's Javi again. Shall we have a listen? <laughs> That's the number one song worldwide, I have worldwide, to say. Worldwide, not World, just in Mexico, not everywhere. Everywhere. So that's remarkable for a 19-year-old from Mexico as well. Well done, Mexico. I mean, they're doing so well in the charts. Well, no, you may have... So you were saying earlier, uh, when we introduced this item, that this was going to be the year of Mexican pop, a, a claim which listeners who are still with us will recall I, I mocked and derided but do you genuinely think that there is something to it that it might not just that it might be one of those things where it's not just Mexican music we are listening to but we are listening to sufficient Mexican music that a lot of everybody else's music becomes Mexicified yes indeed and very surprising because even in Latin America Colombia and Puerto Rico were the countries you mm-hmm. looked for for global superstars but I think we should pay attention to Mexico more and more We're heading back to Copenhagen now. Stine Goya is the designer and founder of the eponymous women's wear label, beloved by the city smart set. She explains how she and her partner, Thomas Goya Hats, build the brand. Last season, we invited the audience to come and watch the show in the street where we live here in Copenhagen. And this season, we thought it would be really nice to invite people even closer to us. So we did the show in our studio in Copenhagen because we wanted people to get to know us also as a company and to get to know who we work with, the team that we work with. So we didn't have to look far for inspiration. It was all within the colorful headquarter of ours. The prints that we did for the collection was literally um, hand-drawn prints of the staircase of the building, the showroom that we have in the studio. And then we collaborated with an artist called David Risley. He's actually British born, but lives here. And he captured beautifully some of our team members in his very lovely um, watercolor paintings. And that was hanging on the wall. So it's kind of an exhibition as well when, when people came in. And it's interesting, the brand has grown so much since the first time we met. You now have a shop in London, you're selling all across the US. But is it important that as you grow, you still keep people close to you and open your personal space and, and maintain that sense of intimacy? Yeah, I, I think for us it makes a lot of sense because, as you said in the beginning, the brand has Dina's name. And we feel that the personality of the brand is very much carried out through Stina. So we believe it's kind of what also makes us different from a lot of other brands, that 
We want to open up, show who we are, our values, how we work, the people we work with. And um, I think growing so much, becoming more international, you also realize that you are a tiny little player in a huge international fashion scene. And then you need actually to understand even deeper who you are in order to keep yourself and in order to also be convincing your audience about why are we here, if you know what I mean. So I think it's a little bit of a counter-reaction on becoming more and more international that we try to get closer and closer to the core of, of who we are and show it. Talking to some of the editors that are passing by here at SIF and buyers, the general consensus was this was one of your best collections to date. And I found quite interesting that, of course, there was artwork and pattern, which is your signature, but you've toned things down a little bit and played with, with more muted colors. Tell me about this new mood and, and what you are feeling this season. I always try and close the door when I start designing with my team and, and try to feel what I think is the right approach to the upcoming season. And I think with this one, I really wanted to work with different tones of the same color and the way that you could style it together. And I like to f always focus on few very strong colors. And in this season, I work with the red okra, which I think was really... Uh, powerful and then I had some blues in and um, and then a lot of browner tones and I think colors is so much you know that it can be both very bright and powerful colors but it can also be in the way that you use it in the styling that you tone it down which is was more subtle and it is a winter collection which I think also we normally work with a bit of darker colors with that it was extremely well received and for good reason. I know that apart from launching this collection this week, you've got a lot more exciting projects coming up later in the year. Tell me a little bit about what we should be expecting. I think next year will be exciting, of course, in terms of the development of the collections. And as you say, there is a feeling of a more uh, toned down color-wise for this season. So I think we will also see a development in the collection, but we also have a very exciting project coming up uh, next year. We are invited to curate an exhibition in a museum called Kunsten in Olbo. It's a very amazing building from the architect Alva Alto, and it's a huge space, and they asked uh, Stine to curate from their art uh, collection a huge building which of course we are proud and humble about that because it's not an easy task you know to choose from 4,000 art, art pieces and that will happen in November next year uh, and we look very much forward to it and it's so nicely linked to who we are how we work and where we get a lot of inspiration in the brand yeah you're always teaming up with, I mean, you've done a collaboration with Georg Jensen and tried your hand at jewelry. You're always working with architects and artists, like you mentioned earlier. Is that what keeps you going and keeps you inspired also doing projects outside of, of fashion and those core collections that you have to design every year? Yeah, I, I do love to search for inspiration through artists. And it's always been in the core of my creativity is to get inspired by art. So 
yeah, I love to do things like this collaboration with the art museum, but also working with David for this season. I think it definitely opens up my eyes to new inspiration. And a lot of the conversations we've been having here, and I think in the industry as a whole, is that the definition of what it is to have a fashion brand is really expanding to other sectors, other projects. Have you found that that's true in, in your case as well? I think it, in many ways we have always been quite open to other sectors and businesses. As you said, we have been working with so many different people and companies throughout the year from architects to uh, jewelry to art so for us it has been part of of how we are working but it's really uh, something that is happening at the moment that all sectors are looking towards each other and find ways to grow and find ways to get inspired from each other and we, this is also why this museum is asking us because they want something that we can do and we want something that they have so it's a nice combination with uh, a lot of excitement because you also have to be true to where you come from so a museum has to be a museum inviting a commercial brand like we are into the halls of a museum of course is challenging but also very interesting and everybody is kind of also curious about how can we how can make we do it? <laughs> how can we do it? Yeah. So it's very exciting. And now it's time to end with some food as I like to do on the curator every week. Taiwan might be a small island, but its culinary staples, such as beef noodle soup and bao buns, are soaring popularity worldwide. And there's a rich diversity of regional cuisines that have yet to travel beyond its shores. Monaco's Naomi Shu Elegant takes a trip to the southern city of Tainan to explore its unique food and drink scene. Tainan is the oldest city on the island of Taiwan and served as its capital until 1887. Its streets are a maze of twisting alleys, with ornate and colorful Buddhist and Taoist temples seemingly tucked behind every corner. Shop houses with covered awnings create porticos over the pavement, allowing pedestrians to wander the city shaded from the sun. 400 years ago, in 1624, merchants from the Dutch East India Company alighted on Taiwan's southwestern shores and established a small fort and trading post. The settlement grew and survived battles and changes of government. First the Ming Dynasty ousted the Dutch, and then the Qing Dynasty usurped the Ming. In the late 19th century, the Japanese invaded and ruled until they were defeated in World War II, and the Republic of China took over control of the island. This tumultuous history has transformed Hainan into a melting pot of multicultural and multinational influences. Historic structures like Fort Provincia carry the memory of Dutch colonization, while buildings like the Hayashi Department Store and the Museum of Literature built during the Japanese colonial era, still have visible damage from World War II bombings. Japanese restaurants and traditional tea rooms, some like Sputnik Lab, located in century-old wooden houses, are dotted all over the city. Many of the local food stalls and street-side vendors who serve simple Tainan classics like beef soup and rice dumplings are decades-old establishments. The simplest breakfasts are usually the best. Grab a plastic stool at a local breakfast spot and enjoy some scallion pancakes, stuffed with fluffy scrambled eggs or slices of beef, along with a cup of soy milk. Check out 1-2 Tea House or Bante for traditional Taiwanese tea, San San and Pari Pari for coffee and cake, and Tin Drum for brunch in a picturesque alleyway. Tainan is a snacking city, best explored with an extra-large cup of icy cold bubble tea in hand. Some unmissable snacks are Bawan, 
a glutinous stuffed dumpling with a slightly sweet and sour sauce. Tainan's iconic beef soup can likewise be eaten at any time of day, a late lunch, a midnight snack, or an early morning breakfast. Wafer-thin slices of tender beef simmer in a deep, rich broth, and come with a bowl of white rice topped with fatty pork or beef gravy. Coastal Tainan also has amazing selections of freshly caught seafood. One fish in particular is so popular that there's a whole museum dedicated to it, the Sabah Milkfish Museum, where visitors can learn everything they need to know about Taiwan's favorite fish, the milkfish, a small silver creature found across Southeast Asian and Pacific island cuisines. Its tender white meat packed with omega-3 fatty acids means it's great pan-fried and topped with white pepper and scallions, or else chopped up with ginger and mixed into a warm rice congee. More adventurous types can try the milkfish ice cream offered in the museum. That's not even the only food-based museum in Tainan, which is also home to the Black Bridge Sausage Museum, a history-filled walkthrough of the Taiwanese pork sausage, as well as a wider introduction to Tainan's recent past. There's an ample gift shop for hungry sightseers to stock up on sausages and other pork products to their heart's content. After a long day exploring the city on foot, the best thing to do is cool off with a drink. Tainan is home to plenty of world-class cocktail bars. Check out Moon Rock for distinctive and delicious drinks like Niao Niao, a gin cocktail made with smoked seaweed, pineapple, winter melon, and indigenous Taiwanese herbs. 1949 Bar, Hira, and Swallow are some other great bars. For dinner, options abound. The recently opened Biumi Lab is a slightly experimental restaurant that blends Taiwanese, Japanese, and Southeast Asian flavors. The seats are arranged along a counter, facing the open kitchen, and the chef founders serve the customers themselves. If you're traveling with a group and you're especially hungry, head to Asha and order one of the famous set menus. The family-run restaurant opened in 1940 and serves classic Taiwanese fare like three-cup chicken, braised pork knuckles, crab soup, and eel noodles. Asha is also well known for its dessert soups. Don't miss them. And that's all we've got time for this week's edition of the Curator. The show was produced by David Stevens and presented by me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Join us again next week, and thank you for listening. <laughs>